All right, we've reached verse 5 of chapter 2 this evening, and you'll want to have the second page of the eighth handout to resume. And Lord willing, we'll be able to move on to the ninth handout that is at the back there. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, uh, we are brought into a world which is greater than the world we inhabit. By the grace of your Son and the fact that he inhabited in our world, we might come to his. While we thank you for this, we realize the inestimable riches of the grace of your Son and the unworthiness of ourselves, the realization that he left much to claim us, and we, O Lord, would respond by giving him much of ourselves, indeed, our whole self. And so, O Lord, bless us to that end. We may not be niggardly in the way we live with respect to his love and grace, but we may lavishly reflect the lavish riches of heaven which he has brought to our hearts. Now, as we turn our attention once again to this wonderful epistle, we beg you to help us by the spirit that inspired it to understand it and more deeply walk and live out of it. We ask this in the name of him who has joined us so magnificently unto himself by faith through grace, your dear Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now the question that we begin with this evening is, The meaning of this word world, which appears in verse 5, he indicates in this verse that it is the world of which he is speaking. And so we need to ascertain exactly what world is that. And if you have the New American Standard Version, there is a marginal note which reads, the inhabited earth. If we begin with the literal translation of the Greek, the text says, the coming economy. The coming economy, from the Greek word ecumene. That may not help us very much, but it is the same Word that appears in chapter 1, verse 6. So, as you reflect upon that sixth verse of the first chapter and bring it to bear upon verse 5 of chapter 2, what world is he speaking of? Don't all answer at once. I'm always wrong. 
Okay, is arguing for this world that we're living in. Would you say that that's what he means when he uh, is talking in verse 6 of chapter 1, that the angels are worshiping the sun in this world? Your husband is nodding, and so you're in submission to your husband, Kay, so you must agree with him, I suppose. You will agree with your husband. That's a good family answer. But let's think a little more carefully about verse 6 of chapter 1. Loretta, is the world in which the angels worship the sun, is that the created or physical world that you walk out to every morning or every afternoon? You can't see the world in which they worship him. Okay, it is the invisible world, isn't it? So... It's not the inhabited world that we are part of. Consequently, the world in verse 6 of chapter 1 is the world in which the angels worship the Son in his pre-incarnate glory. Because we've been emphasizing that that first chapter is talking about the ontological being, that is, the eternal being of the Son of God before the creation of the universe. In parallel, then, it is that world about which the writer is speaking here in verse 5 of chapter 2. It is the heavenly world. And so I take objection to the New American Standards marginal version. You may never have believed that I would ever say such a thing, though, take exception to the New American Standard. But here they have made a, a mistake, I believe, in the nuance of the term. Uh, because uh, the angels who are subject to the Son in that world, namely the world of heaven about which he is speaking, is the topic about which he is going to go on. Consequently, this uh, arena which is under consideration is the arena of heaven or the eschatological dimension. Now, to reinforce that, in other words, our explanation of world here in 2.5 and world there in 1.6 is it's the same heavenly world. It's the world in which the triune God is present and the angels are before them worshiping and adoring them even before the creation of the heavens and the earth. In order to reinforce that, let's look at the connection between this fifth verse and the previous verse, verse 4. Notice in verse 4, the writer has talked about these signs and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. All right, now as we talked about the miracles of Jesus in explaining this verse, one of the things that we indicated was that the miracles of Christ are a display of what? Loretta, the supernatural, and what dimension is that? It's unseen, so give me another word. Where do you hope to go? 
It's the dimension of heaven. So what's happening in the miracles is Jesus is showing a sign, okay, displaying a manifestation of what that heavenly world is like. There's no sickness in it. There's no death in it. There are no blind or lame in it. All right, so in verse 4, he's talking about the uh, manifest signs, the displays, the miraculous demonstrations of that kingdom of heaven, of that heavenly world, of that heavenly dimension. So consequently here, he's continuing with the same theme. It's the same world which is being manifest or displayed. There, in verse 4, it's displayed through the signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here, it's displayed by the subjection of that world, of that arena, to the one who is the Lord of it, the Son of it, the one who is Lord of the angels themselves. So, there is a seamless connection, that is, there's a rolling connection between the dimensions or the arenas that he is describing. That's the reason he said, concerning which we are speaking. Verse 4 and 5 are interconnected in terms of that world or heavenly arena which is being described. Now, let's ask another question. If it is the world of heaven that is being described in that phrase, world to come, if it is the world of heaven, is that world subject to angels? Is that world under the authority of angels, Maureen? No, it is not. Whose authority is it under, Mike? It is under the authority of the Son of God. Okay, once again, we see what he is describing here. It is the surpassing excellence of the Son, but even in terms of those beings which would be greater than man in terms of their supernatural character. But here, they are subject in their own arena to the one who is Lord of that domain, the one who is Lord of heaven. Back to chapter 1, verse 13, to confirm this. Who sits at the footstool of the Son? No. No. Pardon? No. What's in verse 13? Angels. Angels. All right. So, (laughs) this is what I'm driving at. The angels sit at his feet. He does not sit at the feet of the angels. In what dimension? In the kingdom of heaven. Now, it is true, everything you said about everything being subject to him and his enemies, etc. But notice what he says in that. He did not say this to the angels because in that dimension, the angels aren't at aren't over his head. They are at his feet. They are subject to him. So consistent then with this pattern, the argument is coming to its climax here in verse five of chapter two. We're talking about this Arena, which is the arena, verse 3 of chapter 2, of the Christian's salvation. It is also the arena, chapter 12, verse 22, to which you and I have come. For the writer says in Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come 
to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the kingdom of heaven. You have come to heaven itself. That is where you have been brought. All right, well, I'm not there yet. No, that is true. Nonetheless, this discussion of the New Testament writers, the writer of Hebrews is not alone here, describing how you in Christ, in the Son of God, have been brought to where he is. He is in heaven. He has brought you there already, provisionally. By joining you to himself. And so you belong to a heavenly world. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Paul in Philippians. All right. Now, he moves in verse 6 to go back to the Old Testament. What psalm? Sarai, what psalm? Sarai? Eight. Eight? Psalm 8. Very good. All right, now, why does he do this? Why does he do this? Christina, why is he going back to Psalm 8? Um, I think it's, I'm just coming in. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with him, but I can show his... Yes, I think you said it right, but I didn't hear it clearly. His being? His essential being? Yes. (coughs) Mary Lou, is he showing his essential being? Why is he using Psalm 8? No, why is he using Psalm 8? What's the theme of Psalm 8, Art? Well, he's bringing up a new point. Yes, what is it? The point is that uh, the Son of God incarnate in his fleshly, his human form is lower. So he's going back to his humanity. Okay, he's now talking about his humanity. So we've shifted from ontology, uh, that's from his eternal pre-existence, all right, to the fact that he's become man. To go use Psalm 8 to anchor that point. Now, what motif is here? Man in general? Royalty, kingliness. Royalty? I don't think so. What motif is present as he's looking at Psalm 8? Messianic? I don't think so, but that's arguable. I want to comment on that in a minute. If you didn't hear what Pete suggested, he suggested messianic. Uh, <clears throat> I want to come back to that. Talking about man. So what's the motif? Art? In, in relation? He's greater than the angels. What's the motif? What's the motif? He has been exalted. Art? I'm sure this is wrong. Did you do that little parabola? No. Why did he go back to man and the son of man? What's the motif? The son. We give up. <laughs> Adam. Adam. 
Because when we're going to move from the ontological or the world of the triune God and the angels, the next move we're going to make is into the history of redemption with Adam, with the beginning of mankind. This is an Adamic motif. That's what Psalm 8 is doing. Psalm 8 is talking about how man was made in the beginning. So our author is using this a psalm in order to anchor his argument and his narrative in the beginning of the history of redemption, in the Adamic origination of mankind. All right, so we've got the Adamic motif, all right? Now, let's take a look at that uh, explanation or those, those two clauses or two phrases I put in your outline. We, we were dealing with the revelation of Christology as ontology in chapter 1, verses 2 to 14. Now, what is Christology? Marge, what is Christology? I was going to say study of Christ. But yes, that's fine. It's the study of Christ or the doctrine of Christ. All right, now, what's ontology? Terry, what's ontology? Help him out, Mary Lou. Not for sure. That's all right. Try, try it. Well, I know it's a medical term. It's a medical term? No, that's oncology. This is, this is ontology. It sounds like that here. Yeah, O-N-T. Okay, not O-N-C. Robert? You say it was the study of relationships? Mm, you're going to have to be a little more precise than that. Who is, Bob, were you ready to say something? I was just saying it's the study of God, the Father. It, it, it's just, you're, you're getting there. You're not quite there yet. It's the study of being, God's absolute or essential being. So here on the Christology as ontology, we're talking about the deity, that he is the very being of God. The Son of God is the very being of God. So is the Father and so is the Holy Spirit. But we're concentrating here on he has spoken in these last days through his Son. All right, so the sonship of the son is an ontological category because he is the very being of the co-essential Godhead. All right, so we've been talking about that through the end of chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, we begin here in verse 5 to talk about Christology as anthropology. What's anthropology, Okay, Did you ever take a course in anthropology? It wasn't really cool in your day and or in my day, but now it's a kind of in thing. But go ahead. Do you know what anthropology is? I think it's a study of human beings. Yes, it's a study of man from the Greek word anthropos, which means man. Now, here we're obviously talking about the fact that God, as Art said earlier, that the Son of God has been incarnate. So with the ontology category, we're looking at the Son of God as God. With the anthropology category, we're looking at the Son of God as man. Now, that gives us, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, a God-man. Two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, united, that's what the hyphen is, united in one person. Now, We've talked about this word before, but let's do it again. This is a theanthropic Christology because 
Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man. And you see in this word, theanthropic, God from theos in Greek, man from anthropos or anthropology, we put them together to join them together because these two natures are joined in the one person, Jesus of Nazareth. So we have an ontological Christology. We have an anthropological Christology. We have a theanthropic Christology. These are fancy words, but they're expressing the character of Christ as God himself, as man incarnate, as a God-man, not a schizophrenic God-man. These are natures united theanthropically, not divided, not confused, not mixed up. They are distinct, but not separate in his one person. Jesus of Nazareth, divine son of God. All right, so now we're going to start talking in Hebrews 2 from verse 6 on about this incarnational Christology, this theanthropic Christology, this Christology of anthropology. That is, he is man as well as God. Large part of chapter 1, he is God. Okay? Large part of chapter 2, he is man. He is God and man. Notice how the writer is keeping those two natures together. Now, out of this, notice, as Christ himself unites the divine nature and the human nature, and he unites them inseparably, he still has them, doesn't he? Or does he? Did he leave one behind? No, he still has them. And he will have them for forever, for all eternity. All right, so he adds to his divine nature, human nature, he unites. Let's use this word, unites. He unites with his divine nature, a human nature. Why does he do that? So that human nature can be united to his divine nature. Now, this does not mean that we are going to become deified or Christians or we're going to become some kind of gods that are going to blur the creator-creature distinction. This is a spiritual union. But nonetheless, the model for your being joined by faith to the, the Son of God and to the Trinity to the glory of the uh, 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 eternally glorious Godhead, your union is patterned on the basis of this union. Because God became man and added in inseparable union to his deity, manhood, he has set the pattern for your humanity being united by faith spiritually to the Godhead. This is a spiritual relation. Okay, it is not a physical, it's not a, you're not going to become the nature of God. But nonetheless, he became man so that men may become the sons and daughters of God. You see the pattern. That's the reason that this two-nature, we call this two-nature Christology. Uh, God and man, inseparably united. This two-nature Christology has a practical point of realization, namely that in the union 
of the two natures in Christ is the model of our union with God. God became man so that men can be united to God by grace through faith in the spiritual bond of the Holy Ghost. Follow that. You see, this is not just a theoretical, this is not theoretical uh, uh, seminary stuff. This is very real in terms of your own faith and understanding of why God became man, why the incarnation is, why is there a theanthropic person? Why was it necessary? Okay, any questions or comments? Anything you're puzzled about there? All right, so the motif is Adamic. It is man, it is Adamic man. So the symmetry in the psalm is man and the son of man. Now, this is poetic symmetry. Psalm 8 is a Hebrew poem. When the the Hebrew poets write, they write symmetrically. They write in terms of parallel expression. So these are not exactly equal terms. What then is the nuanced difference? What's the difference between man and the son of man? So you've never thought about that. You've always thought about them being exactly the same. Maureen, you're shaking your head no. I I think of man as being humankind and the son of man being Jesus. All right, let's leave this. Let's let Jesus as son of man out of the discussion for the time being. Okay, the psalmist. Let's 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 think about what the psalmist is saying, forgetting any potential prophetic quality of the psalm just for a moment. No, you're right about man, okay? That's what I'm looking for. You're saying man is, man, is humankind. Go ahead, I'm sorry. There was one in Daniel, too, the son of man. Forget that, okay? I want you to leave that off of the table, all right? Right now, I want you to just think about, let's talk about son of man in parallel to man. Man is humankind, all right? You're right about that. And then what's son of man? Some related to... But how? Yes, exactly. So, son of man is his descendants. So, here is man parallel to son of man, but parallel in a sense which is nuanced. There is a difference. Mankind as a whole, man. Son of man as mankind in terms of descent. It's not leaving women out, please, okay? They're they're included in mankind, okay? They're included in the son of men, son of men and women, okay? All right, so the point is, he's talking about two aspects of Adamic humanity. That humanity as mankind as it stands, over against the animal creation, over against the angelic creation, etc., But he's also talking about mankind in terms of its descendants, in terms of its connectional relationship. We could say in Reformed theology in terms of its covenantal context. But I don't want to push that too far. Okay, Just leave this. At this point, we understand that he's talking about man and the descendants of man. Now, let's go back to the question that Pete anticipated and Maureen has also raised. What about the messianic son of man? Where does this appear, Maureen? You said it already. There is a there is a remark about the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. What chapter? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but it's Art? 
No, it's not there. That is the burning bush and that one who looks like a son of the gods. But the term son of man is used in the book of Daniel. It is also in Ezekiel. Let's stick with one thing at a time. All right, we've got Daniel, but where is it in Daniel and what's the context? Scott, what's the context in Daniel? Uh, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. What chapter? Um, Stephen? <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, Stephen's got a chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And the, inst- the context is the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of glory. Very important passage in the book of Daniel. Because that is definitely a messianic context. Now, it appears in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, it is the most common name for the prophet in the book of Ezekiel. It occurs literally dozens of times throughout the book. All right. There, it is a way of describing the prophet's very close prophetic relationship to God. He is described in a complementary title, Son of Man. All right, I'm not going to penetrate that any further except to observe it. Where else does this this term? Ezekiel, Daniel, where else? Okay, where else? Loretta, where else? Terry, where else? Revelation? Mm, Probably does, but I'm thinking of something a lot more common. The Gospels. The Gospels, yes. Who, where, why, where? Yes, it's Jesus' self-designation, isn't it? Okay, so now Jesus uses that term to describe himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. All right now, now we're building a case for the messianic interpretation of the term Son of Man. But notice, we're dealing with that out of prophetic corpus, out of Ezekiel and Daniel. We're not dealing with it out of Psalm 8. All right, now we can argue this or talk about it. But I'm going to stand on the premise that Psalm 8 is not messianic. Now, I'm standing in good company because Gerhardus Voss happens to think the same thing. But uh, be that as it may, uh, this uh, this passage in, in Psalm 8 is a more generic description of mankind and his connectional descent or covenantal relation. It is not particularly messianic. I won't... I won't be dogmatic and, you know, uh, and say that's absolutely wrong, but nonetheless, I think that's the direction that the psalm is going. All right, now, who is this son of man according to Hebrews, and how do you know it? Who is this man and son of man according to the writer of Hebrews, and how do you know who he is? Jesus. How do you know? You're absolutely right. How do you know? Well, in verse 7, it says, You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Not yet. Not yet. You made him a little lower than me. Verse 5. No. Keep looking. (laughs) I I couldn't hear who he said it was. He, he, uh, He said it was Jesus from verse 7. He's right about Jesus, but not from verse 7. Verse 8. Not yet. Verse 9. There it is. See it? Verse 9. <laughs> Namely, Jesus. All right. So the solution to the mystery here is that it's Jesus, but he worked it out in verse 9 to make it explicit. Now, we're already 
we're already sensitive that it is Jesus, but nonetheless, he makes it absolutely clear. All right, now let's go back to verse 7 that Art brought up, and let's ask ourselves about the motif that is dominant there in verse 7. What is the thing that he's talking about in that seventh verse? Say it in one word. It has something to do with an Adamic motif. What does God tell Adam to do? Work. To work? And also to do what? Come on, you haven't got any theonomists out there? Come on. Yes, the exercise of dominion. This seventh verse is a description of the exercise of dominion. Now, the exercise of dominion that is given to Adam in the garden is a part of what? It is a part of the Imago Dei. What's the Imago Dei? The image of God. All right, so one part of the image of God is the exercise of dominion over the creation. Mankind has been given that exercise in the Adamic state. All right, what else is that? Is that does that exhaust the image of God? For instance, Loretta, if I say you are made in the image of God, does that simply mean you have dominion over your flowers? You do have dominion over your flowers, as you lovely, uh, routinely bring them up into the church. Thank you very much. But uh, is that exhausting what it means for you to be in the image of God? There is more. What is it? Would you, would you give me one more thing? You're doing it right now. Thank you. Pete! <laughs> Sorry. I am thinking, yeah. <laughs> yes. All right, so another part of the image of God from your blabbermouth pastor is that you are a thinking being or a rational being, which means that you have a mind. Does God have a mind? He is a thinking being, is he not? Everything is spontaneous for him. He doesn't sit. He doesn't have to sit there like we do and have the wheels cranking away. Okay? Does God exercise dominion? Yes, he does. Because this word dominion comes from the Latin word dominus. What does dominus mean in Latin? Lord. It means Lord. Exercises authority and lordship. Okay. So we have dominion as part of the image of God. We have a mental, intellectual, rational aspect of the part of the image of God. What else? Kay, do you have anything else you want to suggest as part of the image of God? Emotions. Emotions, very good. You have feelings. You have a heart, okay? There is an emotional center to us. Does God have feelings? Does he have a heart? Yeah, it's not exactly like ours, but nonetheless, he does have an emotional center. He loves his children. He also has an emotional center in which he is angry with the wicked. All right, so there's an emotional aspect to the image of God. Anything else you'd like to suggest? Spiritual. Spiritual? Mm, okay. Moral, exactly. That's what we're after. That's the last one. This is the moral aspect. That is the ethical character. God is a moral being. Now, Paul summarizes this 
in Ephesians 4. In verse 24, he summarizes 2, 3, and 4. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He's essentially pointing to these characteristics. He does not include dominion, but dominion is definitely in the Genesis revelation. All right, now, what is going on with glory and honor in verse 7 or in the 8th Psalm? Is this talking about the fall and then the restoration from the fall? No, this is image of God pre-fall. Right. So but what is glory? A little lower than the angels, is that Yes, a that's still pre-fall. Okay. So what is glory and honor here? Okay, think of what an image does. What does an image do? Better, better. Reflex. 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 All right. So the glory and honor here is the reflection of the image of God in man or the son of man. It's the reflective character of God's image in you, you reflecting God's image in the world. Adam was to reflect. He made in the image of God in order that he would reflect that mirror image to the creation. All right, now, sin has changed it. Sin has changed this. This is the way man was created. Falling from that state, the creation now dominates man. Man does not dominate the creation. So, sin having reversed this dominion, which is the key element here to the image of God that the psalmist is focusing on and the writer is pointing to because it feeds into his theme of subjection, okay? Dominion is related to subjection. That's the key point of the image that he's featuring here. Sin having reversed the dominion, when will this be reversed? When Christians take over the world, right? All right, well, if you say no, understand you're talking as if you are not earthly triumphalists, which is very important for you to realize if you're right about that, if that is, in fact, a correct conclusion. If the reversal of uh, the loss of dominion, if the restoration of dominion is to await the restoration of the visible heavens and earth to the rule of Christianity, okay? If that's what we're waiting for, okay? Then we've got an eschatology, which is triumphalist, which is basically oriented towards the earth. And we are what label? Eschatologically. We are post-millennial. We are post-millennialist. All right, that is what the uh, dominion theology of a future Christian conquest of the world or Christian domination of the world is all about. It is all about a post-millennial worldview, a post-millennial eschatological view. Now, is that what the writer of Hebrews is doing? Because as he uses Psalm 2... He's saying we do not see that dominion subjection yet. 
When will we see it? When Christ returns, and in fact, that which will be displayed consummately at the return is already provisionally real and with us. It is present in this created arena already because he is subjecting the world unto himself and subduing his enemies even as we speak. This son of man, this Adamic man, has indeed subdued the created order and the enemies of mankind to himself. Now, he hasn't put all things in subjection, but he has inaugurated the subjection of all things in his death and resurrection. There was a hand up. I didn't see where it was coming up, but I saw a hand waving. Okay. All right. Now, another Adam will exercise dominion. He will restore the exercise of dominion over the created order. And Christ's miracles are a display of that, but they are not a consummate display of that. They are a provisional and inaugural display of his lordship over the created order. There will come a day when he will perfectly, consummately, and eternally subject all things unto himself. And there will be no more curse anymore. Yes? Um, what's, I don't know if you can answer this. What will happen with the new heavens and the new earth and that dominion? How is that going to change, just like the heavens and the earth are going to change? Is, God, is Christ's dominion going to be more perfect? I mean, what, what will the new heavens and the new earth mean for this? The new heavens and the new earth are a description of the eschatological heavens and earth, the eternal heavens and earth, that which will be part of the transformation of the ages consummately. In other words, it is imagery which is based upon what we're familiar with, but it is imagery which becomes, particularly as it's used in the book of Revelation, projected into the eternal future. So it is new heavens and new earth in terms of an eternal dimension, a non-material dimension or a glorified material dimension, not a terra firma, this kind of stuff dimension. That's my opinion. Now, there are differences of opinion on that point, but that's where I come down. But this dimension will be dissolved in a fervent heat, Second Peter 3. In other words, it will be completely uh, annihilated. And it, out of it will not come any kind of new world order. Out of it will come what will abide, as the writer says in chapter 12. You notice in chapter 12 here of Hebrews, <clears throat> he will shake the things of the created order, in order that those things which cannot be shaken will remain. So what will what cannot be shaken will abide. It will remain. It's already there. It's there where Jesus is right now. Right. So I'm, I'm not asking if he's going to become Lord over this domination. I'm asking what's going to change. He's already ruling 
in the new heavens and the new earth, fully realized in his full eschatology. So what will change when he comes again? Will anything change? There will be no, there will be no material dimension which resists him. It will be completely gone. And heaven itself will be a perfect rule of eternal subjection. A new heaven and new earth in terms of that perfect eschatological extension. Hell itself will resist him, but it will not resist him anymore in this arena. It will be banished. So how is that non-material world going to accept our material bodies, which will be united with our souls? Okay, that non-material world will accept your body the same way it accepted Jesus' body. 1 Corinthians 15. It is a body which is spiritual. It doesn't mean it is a body which becomes a ghost. It is a body which becomes perfectly subject to the Holy Ghost because that's the dimension of that arena. The spiritual body is the body like Jesus's, which is perfectly sub, uh, glorified, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's the domain of the eschaton. Boss, nature of the resurrection body, Pauline eschatology, 1 Corinthians 15, meticulous exegesis. Pay attention. No, I know you've never read it, but nonetheless, that's, that's where all this comes out of. Okay, all right, uh, now... That brings us to verse 9. And the full accomplishment of the motifs, namely, he's a little lower, referring to what? Now we're talking about Jesus, because verse 9 is talking about Jesus. The little lower image is a description of what? Humanity. His humanity. Uh, Give me a word for that. How does he become man? And we're talking about the idea or the doctrine of the what, Bob? The incarnation. All right, so we're talking about the incarnation with that motif a little lower. Crowned with glory and honor. What are we talking about there? Deity. He's already God, but here... His ascension. You're you're close. His exaltation, okay? By resurrection and ascension, so we can say the incarnation is humiliation. His uh, crowning crown with glory and honor is his exaltation by, by way of resurrection and ascension. What's the pivot? Notice, notice how this verse is constructed. It's very interesting. Okay, first... He lays down the point a little lower, which is the incarnation. He also talks in this verse about his being crowned with glory and honor, which is his exaltation. And where's the pivot? Mark? Yes. The pivot point is in his passion, in his crucifixion. That's the hinge point of the verse. All right, now, that's also a foreshadowing device. He's going to project that into the next section. But look at how the verse itself is constructed. Here you have a case in which structure outlines your theology. Because what holds these two together is the passion of the Son of God. What binds the incarnation to his exaltation is his passion. 
This is a, shall we say, hinge doctrine, a hinge point of Christianity. All right, now we have to deal with the question of what he means by everyone in verse 9. It's obvious that that's a universal category. So in everyone, he's talking about each and every person. So he has suffered or he has uh, uh, given, uh, he has tasted death, for, uh, given the grace of God to each and every person universally because everyone is what the passage says. Or do you like that, Audrey? You don't like that? You like that? So he, he has died for each and every person in the whole wide world. And Art, what do you say to that? Now she's, now she's uh, reconsidering. He's allowing you to reconsider, Audrey. Why don't you like that? It isn't everyone, it's each and everyone. It's each and everyone. But if I say each and everyone, that I means each and every one of everyone. You're still going to stick to your guns and say no? Or I'm going to come back to you. Well, it conflicts with... Uh, What's that? It conflicts with Scripture. Oh, I don't think it conflicts with Scripture, but one thing we know that it doesn't mean. What doesn't it mean? Everyone in the world. It doesn't mean that. Okay, now how do we know from this passage that it doesn't mean that? Here he's talking, he tastes death for everyone. Sounds like he's a universalist. Sounds like he's a universalist. But how do you know from the passage that he's not? Marge, you're shaking your head. Because um, by the grace of God, he not everyone is benefiting from that death. Yeah, well, well, well you're, you're bringing that to the passage, but I want you to see from the passage itself, not necessarily from verse 9, but I want you to see from the passage in the context itself that he doesn't mean each and every one. Go ahead, Kristen. Verse 11 that's a possible that's a possible support for a more limited interpretation of everyone what else many sons many sons yes every one of the many sons and daughters it's not just sons male it's it's uh, sons and daughters, male and female. So the point is that the context will tell you what the everyone is. It is the many sons in verse 10. And what is it in verse 11? Those who are his brethren. Those who are his brethren. Is each and every person in the world a brother of Christ? Only if you're a liberal. Fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. Brotherhood of all mankind. Now, the brothers of Christ are those that are adopted into his family. They belong to him by an act of grace. Okay? The many sons and daughters that he brings are those sons and daughters of an innumerable uh, host out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, but not all of them. <clears throat> Question back there. Um, could it not be that 
not just mean that everyone is a sinner and he tastes death because of the sin that's existing in the world. But that could that first verse I mean God allows him to come and die, but not a, a death of not because of the Greek preposition here. <clears throat> the Greek preposition here for is uper. And uper means on account of. On what? He tastes death on behalf of everyone. It is substitutionary. It is vicarious. He tastes death vicariously. He tastes death as a substitute. Those are, those are synonyms. <clears throat> the substitutionary atonement, the vicarious atonement of Christ. Okay, <clears throat> This is one place where this preposition points to that. It's not the only place. It's a common uh, preposition in the New Testament to suggest that substitutionary notion. <clears throat> but here, if we translate it, he tastes death on behalf of everyone, we still are facing this issue of who are the everyone for whom he tastes death, on whose behalf he dies. Or does he substitute vicariously on this cross for each and every person in the whole history of the human race? Well, think about that for a moment. Just think about it for a moment. If he substitutes for each and every person in the whole history of the human race when he dies on the cross... How did Judas Iscariot go to hell? But if Jesus hung on the cross for him, if he died on his behalf on the cross, how did Judas Iscariot go to hell? He, he wouldn't. He wouldn't go to hell if Jesus hung on the cross and died on his behalf, right? Well, then, if that's what you believe about the cross, in other words, if you believe that the cross is... Jesus dying for each and every person in the whole history of the human race, and Judas goes to hell, or you and I could go to hell, or any person could go to hell, even though Jesus died on our behalf on the cross, what have you made of the cross? I see, I see you're uh, shaking your heads and you're, you've got a little grimace on your face. Good for you. You start to feel the point. You feel the knife, don't you? And yet, who believes this? Who teaches this? Whose doctrine of the cross is this? This is the Arminian doctrine of the cross. This is Jacob Arminius. This is John Wesley. This is Billy Graham. This is every Arminian who has ever walked the face of the earth since the 17th century and actually going back to Augustine and the semi-Pelagians because the semi-Pelagians of the 5th century are actually Arminians as well. Namely, that Jesus dies for each and every person in the whole history of the race, but some persons in the whole history of the race can still go to hell in spite of the fact that he died on their behalf at Calvary. So what have you made of the cross? You've made of the cross a Robert Schuller theology, haven't you? What's Robert Schuller's theology? Possibility theology. It's a possibility gospel. You've made the cross only a possibility. You have not made the cross a certainty. 
If Jesus does in fact die on behalf of every person in the history of the whole human race and you can still go to hell in spite of that, all he ever did on that cross was make it possible for you to believe, for you to go to heaven. He didn't secure you're going to heaven. He didn't guarantee you're going to heaven when he hung there and bled for you. All he did was make it possible if you want to. If you don't want to, then okay. You get the point? Yes, he crucified between two thieves. So he, of course, would be dying for them as well. One he did die for. But the other he did not. All right. So you, you understand the... You get the point when you're talking about an Arminian doctrine or a broad evangelical doctrine of the cross of Jesus. You get it. You got the cross. You empty it of any security. And of course, any good Arminian church, Nazarene, Wesleyan, Pentecostal Arminian, they are all saving you over and over and over again because you can lose it. You can lose it. You can lose the benefit of the cross. By resisting, by turning your heart to unbelief. Therefore, when we come back to what the cross means, the cross in the New Testament means that he secures the salvation of his people. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It doesn't say he shall make salvation possible for his people. He shall save his people. Guaranteed. Can make book on it. I hope that is the basis of your assurance of salvation, because in Arminianism, you can never have any assurance of salvation. Never. Because it all depends upon how much faith you have. But if it depends on the power of the cross and the blood of Jesus, you see you're secure. It doesn't depend upon your faith. Your faith connects you to it. It's an instrument to it. But your faith can get weaker and stronger. But it doesn't become rejected. It doesn't become no faith if, if you don't keep screwing it up to its height. If you slip and fall, if you stumble, he will bring you to repentance and sorrow. You will return in tears to the cross and thank God that Jesus Christ secured the forgiveness of your sins on that tree. He didn't just make it possible for you to go to heaven. He guaranteed you a spot in the book of life. That's the reason he died there. Okay, take your break. Looks looks like there are lots of sweet things. All right, now if you will take out the uh, next handout, uh, handout number nine. We want to continue with verse 10 of chapter 2. Now, the shift here in verse 10 is to an aspect of the incarnation. And what is it? Anyone? Suffering. Is suffering. Is passion. Okay. So now we're moving from just... This incarnational motif and its interface with the exaltation motif to centering in on the hinge point which binds the two, namely the passion 
or the suffering. Passio in Latin does mean to suffer. All right, so let's think about the suffering of Christ now. And notice that the very first word that our author places in the Greek text is the word which is translated in your English versions, it was fitting, or it was necessary, it may be in some of your versions. Now, why does he put it first in the verse? It's the very first word that hits the reader, that hits his audience in this verse. So ask yourself why he does it. It is an important thought. Why is it an important thought? Why does he put it first? His argument. His argument? But why feature this, Terry? Well, we can't make ourselves sons of, of God. So it's fitting. Only he can do it. It's fitting to bring these sons to glory that is true. But it is fitting that he suffer. That's the point that he's emphasizing. It is fitting that he suffer. Why is he doing this? All right, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Frank, do you have it? 1 Corinthians 1, why is it a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles? Why is that so, Frank? Why does Paul say that there in 1 Corinthians 1? Why is the cross a stumbling block to the Jew? That's true, but there's also something more. There's, there's, there's Cursed is everyone that hangs on the cross. Yes, it's a stumbling block to them because they think that anybody that is crucified is cursed. So obviously this isn't a good thing. If Jesus of Nazareth is crucified, that's not a good thing. He's cursed like a criminal. Why is it foolishness to the Greeks? Not logical. Why is? Why do you mean it's not logical? Expand on that. Well, the Greeks were, were looking at everything in a logical way, and if it... If it didn't fit their logic, it was foolish. Okay, then I need to push you further. What is illogical about this then? What's specifically illogical, if that's the point? That one could die for another and there would be salvation because of it. All right, you're getting there. Okay, what, what would be illogical for a Greek specifically? Bob is right, but he's not got it right the tip of the nail on the point. The, Stephen? The resurrection of the dead. And no, we're just simply talking about his passion. Why would the crucifixion be foolishness to a Greek? That a God could die. That a God could die. That's what's illogical about it. They would not think that a God or a divine figure could be killed, could be crucified. All right, now let's go back to Hebrews. Is it possible that there's something like that in the background of this audience? And so he places this word fitting at the beginning of this verse to emphasize that it is not only appropriate, it is absolutely necessary. For within this community, there are those that are troubled by the humiliation of the Son of God. 
There are those that are troubled about the fact that their Savior was crucified like a criminal. Is it possible that he addresses this so emphatically, putting this word at the beginning of the verse as an emphatic staccato? He is sending them a signal. He wants them to realize that it was absolutely appropriate, fitting, and necessary that the Son of God be crucified. He's doing that because they're nervous about that. They're uneasy about it. They really, some of them don't like it. The humiliation of their Savior does not make it look like Christianity is an attractive religion. All right, so this is a signal to the character of some of the difficulty inside the community to which he's writing. They're embarrassed by the cross. Some of them are embarrassed by the cross. They think it's foolishness, potentially foolishness. Because as you noted, I think this is a Hellenistic or Gentile audience. Okay, now we can't prove that, but the fact that he does this sends us a little signal in terms of the structure of the Greek. So we realize the community which is a little bit shaken by the notion of a crucified Savior. Now, he talks about the author of their salvation. That is a poor translation of the Greek. The better word here would be pioneer or captain, going uh, parallel to the very same word used in chapter 12, verse 2. The Greek word there is correctly translated by the King James Version, pioneer and perfecter. I prefer pioneer. For obvious reasons, I'll elaborate in a minute. But he is the pioneer of their salvation, the captain of their salvation, in the sense that he is the leader, not the author per se. It doesn't mean that its origin doesn't come from it. That's not the point. But the word has a emphasis which fits in with the sojourn motif. Now, what do I mean by the sojourn motif? As you stand back from this verse, as you read the verse over, where's the sojourn motif? Where does it jump out at you? A journey theme. Where does it jump out at you? What's he doing? He's bringing sons to glory. Is that a journey motif? Who took the journey first? Christ took the journey first. This is a pilgrimage motif. He's the pioneer and perfecter pilgrim. He is the chief pilgrim. He takes the journey to glory first. And along with him brings many sons and daughters too. He is the eschatological pilgrim. Taking his journey to glory and he brings along with him the semi-eschatological pilgrims, many sons to glory as well. Now, in bringing them to glory, he is bringing them into his arena. He is already seating them in that glory. To take Paul's language, he is seating them in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2, the glory places of heaven. 
And so once again, here is this provisional or inaugural glorification. You will be perfectly glorified as Christ himself was in your entrance into heaven. But you have been provisionally glorified through him and in him. Because he has already seated you in the glorious heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is where your citizenship is. That is your home. That's where you belong because Christ took you there. All right, so this journey motif is uh, undergirding, namely Christ's passage through his incarnation, his passion, his exaltation, and now his glorification. His glorification. You expect to be glorified. You expect to be made fit for glory. Jesus has already been glorified. You expect to be glorified at death. Jesus has already been glorified at his death. You see, everything that you anticipate, he has already participated in. Do you understand what the incarnation is for? The incarnation is for him to live through your life, to live through the life of a human, to live through its stages, even its theological stages. The incarnation is unto him living your story so that you can live his story. This is just an abstraction, you see. Jesus did it in history. And the fact that he did it in history means that it's been done for you and been done in you. What a wonderful gospel this is. You see, that all that you anticipate is already consummately real in the case of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He's already gone through the last judgment. He's already gone through the resurrection of the dead. He's already gone through the glorification. He's already gone through the seating at the right hand of God the Father. He's already gone through the whole history of your future. And yes, he's been justified. And yes, he's been sanctified because he's been perfectly set apart from sin. You see, the whole pattern of what you think about of the stages of your own salvation, repentance and faith, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of that has occurred in him. You don't have to look for emotional experiences. You don't have to look for bright lights. You don't have to look for voices. All you have to do is look to Jesus. It's that simple. It's that profound. Any questions? Or comments about that? Now, there is a book on crucifixion which is superb. Martin Hengel wrote this book almost 20 years ago. It is still in print. It is the finest explanation of what crucifixion was like in the Greco-Roman world of our Lord's own day. It is not easy reading. It is ugly stuff. But that's what he endured. 
And what Hengel does is he goes through all of the records that he can ransack in order to give you a full description from Greek and Roman sources of what it meant to be crucified. Now, you don't really have to have a strong stomach to read the book because you realize the agony that your Savior went through. But it is a book which will bring you down to the real-life experience of what Jesus went through in that event. There is no other book like it. It is excellent. Engel himself is a quasi-post-Bardian liberal. That won't come out in this book. I don't have any problems commending it to you as a lay audience. It's an easy read if you're interested in understanding the graphic and agonizing character of what crucifixion meant. And although we're not going to do the bloody Mel Gibson route, nonetheless, this is something we do need to understand. We need to understand the horror of crucifixion. All right, now, verse 11 presents us with a challenge in terms of this word one. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. What's he talking about with this term one? New American Standard adds in parenthesis, or in italics rather, father. That means that the word is not in the Greek text. Let's leave that out of the discussion and focus upon what he means by one. If we go back to verses 6, 7, and 8, what motif has he focused on there? Adamic motif. All right. So is this an Adamic oneness? Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking here about the oneness of our Adamic nature, that we are united to our Adamic head? Is that the oneness that he is describing here? Is he reverting to a theme that he had left behind in verse 8? Or is there something else going on here? Take a look at verse 13. And see if you can see another, see if you can determine or discern another sense to the word one here. Pete? One family. One family? Okay. One in union with Christ. Very good. Okay. And how do you get that from 13, Pete? Very good. Because it says, here am I, and the children God has given me. Those given to him. Okay, the children given. This is not an Adamic motif. This is a spiritual motif. This is a, as Pete pointed out well, this is a union with Christ motif. They are one bond with him. They are one in union with him. All right, now, this is a very controversial discussion. Commentators in general will land on the side of the Adamic side. That is the oneness of human descent. No, this is spiritual relation, spiritual oneness, oneness through union with Christ, which was, of course, the point of the passion and the incarnation and his uh, exaltation and glorification. Question? Is, um, 
Is the Adamic interpretation, is that more consistent with an Arminian perspective of the sanctification? No, uh, no. It, you, you'll find it even in Calvinists. So it's, it's not theologically constrained or conditioned. Pete? There's a change in verse 10, though. And uh, therefore, the oneness is connected to verse 13 and not to what precedes. That's a good point. Uh, he has left the uh, argument from the Adamic motif behind in verse, not, verse 8. So, no, he's not going backwards. That's correct. All right, now let's take a look at sanctification just in its base meaning here. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Now, first of all, who is the he? We have to identify he who sanctifies. Who is that? Christ. God. Pete says it's Christ. Any other suggestion? Who is the sanctifier? Holy Spirit. Is that who is being described here? No, it's not in the context. Very interesting, isn't it? Very interesting that the Holy Spirit, whom we regard as the sanctifier, because that's his role, which is revealed in the rest of the New Testament. But here, it's Christ who is the sanctifier. All right, chalk that up to a uniqueness, okay, about the epistle of Hebrews. He's showing that Christ is involved in the work of sanctification. Now, we're not going to deny that the whole Godhead is, the, is involved in the work of all, of all of the redemptive aspects of our salvation. We're not going to deny that. But we tend to emphasize sanctification with the Holy Spirit, and properly so, because that's the emphasis that he receives in terms of his uh, distinct function uh, within the Godhead and in the plan of salvation. But here we have a, a little instance in which Christ himself, as the Son of God, is called the sanctifier. All right, what does this word sanctification mean? Let's take a look at the basic root meaning of sanctification. What's it mean? Holy. What does holy mean? You just moved the question one step backwards, Audrey. What, what does holy mean? Yes, it is It is a synonym for holy. And Bob? Set apart. Set apart. Set apart from what? From that which is not holy. <laughs> Give me one word for that big phrase. Set apart from? The world. The world. Sin. sin. Set apart from sin. Now, it comes from a uh, Hebrew word, which is a used in the tabernacle. It's used in the utensils of the tabernacle. They are sanctified. What did it mean when the utensils, that is the bowls and the pans that were used in the tabernacle, what did it mean when they were sanctified? They were set apart. They were set apart to the Lord's use in the tabernacle. They were set apart from a common everyday use to a particular or special use dedicated or consecrated to use at the tabernacle. So the root sense of uh, holy in Hebrew, which is kodesh, uh, the root mean the root meaning is set apart. All right, we'll extend it to the moral category, set apart from sin. All right, what's the second aspect of sanctification? Not only being set apart from sin. Set apart from God. That's true. I'm, I'm going to put those two on the same line, set apart from sin unto God, okay? Sanctification includes the notion of being 
cleansed from it. It is being increasingly or progressively cleansed from sin. And so, once again, in the tabernacle, the process of sanctifying the utensils was to cleanse them. So there's this twofold aspect of sanctification. We haven't exhausted it entirely. But nonetheless, Christ is the one who is the active agent here. He sanctifies by setting us apart unto himself, which is setting us apart unto God, and he sanctifies by cleansing us, that is, by removing the defilement of sin from us. All right, any questions about verse 11 there? Now, we'll put 12 and 13 together, and first of all, what texts are being cited here? Yes, take a look at your marginal notes. That's fine. That's, we, that's the reason they're there. Don't you love these marginal Bibles where they help you very much with cross-references and little uh, suggestions of alternate translations? Very helpful. Psalm 22, and what else? What do we have in verse 13? No. Isaiah. Yes, Isaiah chapter 8. All right, now, these uh, texts are being cited why? They are what kind of passages? Psalm 22. How does Psalm 22 begin? It's the 22nd verse that is quoted here, but Psalm 22 verse 1 begins how? Verse 1 of Psalm 22? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Yes. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What kind of a psalm is that? Okay, what kind of a psalm is that? That begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's about Christ. It's about Christ, so it's what kind of psalm? Prophetic. Prophetic. Messianic. It is a messianic psalm. Now, what about Isaiah 8? What do we have here? What kind of a passage is Isaiah 8? Okay. I'm assuming it's the same. Messianic, exactly. <laughs> there's a method. There's a method to my madness. Yes, they are both messianic passages. All right. Now, Psalm 22 is not easy. It's not hard to figure out. All right. As Kay pointed out, when we think about that cry from the cross, we think of the messianic accomplishment of the work of Christ. All right. So that one's easy. But what about uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 18? And uh, uh, where is Stephen? There is Stephen. All right. Now, Stephen. <clears throat> Uh, we put Isaiah chapter 8 sandwiched between Isaiah 7 and 9. All right, now, Isaiah 7 is talking about a child. What is the name of this child in Isaiah 7? Is your name Stephen? All right, Stephen, he helped you out. All right, the, the name of the child in Isaiah 7 is Emmanuel. What is the name of the child in Isaiah 9? Mighty God. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, in between, we have sandwiched the name of another child. And what is the name of that child, Stephen? This one is his actual child? Yes. One of his two natural children. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Maher, M-A-H-E-R, Shalal, S-H-A-L-A-L, Hash, H-A-S-H, 
Baz, B-A-Z, hyphens between all of those names. All right, what does that mean? Stephen? Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. All right, now, why is that child called Mahar Halal Shalal Hashbaz? What is the context, Stephen? Uh, uh, Assyria has uh, come and either has or... Who's the wolf on the horizon? What nation? Assyria. Okay, this context of Isaiah 7 and 8 and 9 is the Assyrian crisis of what century? 8th century B.C. Okay, 700s B.C. The context of these passages from Isaiah is the Assyrian crisis. Now, the wolf on the horizon is the king of Assyria. His name is what? Stephen is Tiglath Pileser III. Okay, so here's your map. All right, there's Palestine. Here's Assyria over here. Tigris Euphrates Valley. Here we got Israel. Here we've got Judah. What do we have here, Stephen? Uh, Damascus, Syria. This is Syria. Okay, this is Israel. This is Judah. What's happening between Assyria, Syria, Israel, and Judah? And what are the dates? Uh, let's see. This is uh, the date is uh, seven forty-three. Like later. <laughs> this is seven thirty-four to seven thirty-two BC. This is a Syro-Ephraimite war. Okay, now the Syro-Ephraimite war imposes itself upon Judah and Ahaz, who is king in Jerusalem, in which Isaiah tells him to ask for a sign, and he says, I will not ask for a sign, and therefore God will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. All right, that's the whole context of these messianic uh, uh, children prophecies out of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. Right. What? Why? Why did Syria and Israel, or called Ephraim, in the book of Hosea particularly, why did Syria and Ephraim go after Judah, Stephen? Because they wanted Judah to help them uh, throw off the Assyrian yoke. Very good. Tiglath-Pileser had been carrying out campaigns into the West ever since he became king of Assyria in 745 B.C. He's the beginning of the revival of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. It had been in decline for almost 50 years, first half of the 8th century B.C. 745, he comes to the throne and he says, we're going, to, we're going to go to war. And every year he marches into war. Okay, He goes to the west, he attacks Assyria, retreats, uh, you know, has his army rest up. But while he's resting his army in 734, 735, the Syrians decide to ally themselves with Israel, the northern kingdom, and they join together as a coalition, the Syro-Ephraimite coalition, to invade Judah. And they do that in order to put pressure on Ahaz, who is king in Jerusalem. They want Ahaz to join them so that the three kingdoms can rebel against Assyria and we won't have to pay any taxes anymore. See, they didn't have an election like we did the other day. Remains to be seen whether we'll have to pay any more taxes. But at any rate, 
that's that's the game that's afoot here. Okay, you have this international conflict, but you actually have this kind of subsidiary pressure that's coming from Syria in Damas- from Damascus and Syria from Samaria and Israel against Judah and Jerusalem. Right. The whole point of this is to get rid of the Assyrian wolf. Now, in that crisis, Isaiah comes to Ahaz, king of Jerusalem, and he gives them the prophecy. He gives him the prophecies in Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Those prophecies are messianic. They are all pointing to a sign or a symbolic figure who is going to ultimately conquer the nations and bring in the remnant of Judah. And he is called Emmanuel. He is called El Gibor or the mighty God. He is called the root out of the stem of Jesse. All the language is there, but this is the context for these messianic projections of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. So when the writer of Hebrews picks on Isaiah chapter 8, he is picking upon one of the most prominent messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. In fact, a whole section of messianic prophecies, because when you look at chapter 8 and what's going on in Isaiah chapter 8, you pull together 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and even more. Okay, any questions about why he's looking at Isaiah chapter 8? Besides the fact that it's prominent prophetically, are you seeing a connection between this context, its reversal, its prophetic projection with the book of Hebrews? Yes, well, uh, the broad picture here is the interface between uh, Israel and the nations. Because remember... In that Isaiah uh, 11 passage, those who walked in darkness shall see a great light. So it's the interface between the international or the national uh, crisis and the uh, national uh, people of God crisis, which is being resolved through the messianic projection. He is uniting both. And out of the crisis, bringing ultimate light, glory, salvation, and everlasting peace. That's the, that's the broad paradigm. So the reason the writer of Hebrews is focusing upon this is that his own epistle is binding together both of those motifs, Gentile themes and uh, Gentiles coming in and Jews coming in to the kingdom. Thank you, Stephen. That was today's class, as, uh, as a matter of fact. But <laughs> I had the chance to give him a little review. Now, uh, my brother Charlie, my late brother Charlie, wrote a series of sermons called Isaiah's Christmas Children. And he works through uh, all of these chapters and all of these names, these symbolic children's names. And you can find those sermons on krooks.com. They're free. You can download them free or read them online at no charge. Now, verses 14 and 15. According to this passage, what is the purpose of the incarnation? We noted up above in verse 10 that the purpose of the incarnation is suffering, the suffering of the Son of God. What's the purpose of the incarnation according to verses 14 and 15? To free us from death. To reverse death. Very good, Kay. To reverse death. To reverse death 
by death, to be the death of death, not as its slave, but as its assailant. So the motif here is not just suffering. The motif here is death, the result of mortal suffering. All right, so let's think about the incarnation in a fairly comprehensive way. Okay, first of all, the incarnation of Christ is what? What would you put in that first category, that first arrow? God invading humanity. Give me one word for that. The incarnation is first of all humiliation. Humiliation or condescension. We'll use those terms synonymously here. It is condescension. God comes down to man's level. He condescends to dwell in the likeness of human flesh, yet without sin. All right, second part of incarnation. Identification. He not only condescends to come down to our level, but he identifies. How does he identify? Back to what we discussed in the previous hour. He unites the divine and the human nature. He identifies with joining by joining our human nature to his own divine nature. Once again, the model, you see, the model of what he comes to accomplish. As by the union of natures in himself, he wants to unite us unto himself. He wants to identify with us so we will identify with him. He wants to participate in our realm, our nature, uh, our reality, so that we can participate in his. See, all of this is identification motif. All right, now the next thing, purpose of the incarnation. Destroy the devil. Destroy the devil or to do what for us? One word. Salvation. To redeem us. To deliver or free us, which is the language of the text. And what's the final purpose of the incarnation? Glorification. That having condescended, he will, having been humiliated, he will be exalted and glorified. He will leave death behind for glory. All right, now, we haven't exhausted every aspect of the incarnation by this little outline, but these are the points that are arising from our text, because 
These points are explicitly here in this section of Hebrews 2. But there's also a focus here upon the atonement. Namely, that the death of Christ is an atonement. What does it do? In verse 14, his death does what? Back to Pete. You already said it, Pete. That's the reason I'm returning to you. Oh, because he destroys the power of the devil. He destroys the power of the devil in verse 14. And how does he destroy the power of the devil? He conquers death with his death. With his death, he conquers death with life. That's how he destroys the power of the devil. He exchanges the devil's power, which is death, for the power that is in him, which is life. And in verse 15, what is the second aspect of the atonement which is listed in the text? He destroys the power of the devil and frees or delivers us from death. Because in the identification which he makes with us, in his identification with us, we are identified or united with him. We are united with his life. As we are crucified together with him, so we are raised up together with newness of life with him. Death cannot separate us from the life of Christ any more than that the life that Christ now has can be separated from him himself. That life is eternal. And therefore, he has identified with it so that we may participate in it. The identification motif, once again, this union with Christ, union with his life, union with his eternal life, union with his life out of death, union with a death which can no longer hold him, death which is behind, death which is over for him. He cannot die again. And I've given you as a little paragraph there the marvelous account of the testimony of Polycarp at his martyrdom. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. Polycarp, who was seized when he was 86 years old, seized and told to adjure Christ. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? One of the most famous statements in the whole history of the church. Eighty-six years old. I will turn the beasts upon you. Turn them loose, says Polycarp. I will brand you with flames, says Polycarp. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. The fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment is reserved from the ungodly. You are ignorant of that. But why delay? Do whatever you please. And they put the faggots to his feet and they set them on fire. And they burned Polycarp, burned him to ash at 86 years of age. The testimony of Polycarp is a courageous and heroic testimony of an ancient Christian martyr. It has been the testimony of martyrs ever since in one form or another. 
Did he fear death? No, he did not. Well, then why does the writer say that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their days? Why is the writer talking about the fear of death? Audrey? Because he's talking about the fear of death of the people he's talking. They have the fear of death. Good. Now, now, uh, why do they have a fear of death? Because they don't have, they don't have God in there. They don't have Christ. Okay. Now, now, you're, now we're thinking about the first century A.D. Okay, so we're thinking about people in the first century A.D. Why are they afraid of death? It hurts. It hurts. Okay, uh, you're, you're on the right track, but I want, I want you to go further. See, I want you to think about the cultural context. I want you to think about why he would throw this phrase out to his audience. This audience in this cultural context. What is this cultural context? It's the culture of Greco-Roman culture, correct? All right, so what kind of a culture is that? Is that a Christian culture? Okay, it's a pagan culture. All right, so we want to think about death in a pagan culture. All right, so how did the Romans face death? They feared it. They feared it. And how did they deal with it? I think they ignored it. Oh, no. No, no, they were very serious about it. They feared it so much that they had all kinds of superstitions about death. What did they do? Well, in order to ease their way into the next world, if there was a next world, they really weren't sure about that, but in order to ease their way into the next world, they would feed the gods. So they would offer sacrifices or lay out food. They would pour out libations of wine. They would burn incense. Why would they burn incense? To perfume the living rooms of the gods. In other words, to make their rooms smell like the rooms of the gods. They would offer incense to the gods in order to make it smell good. So, the superstition of the pagan Greco-Roman world was a superstition which provoked a very precise ritual for death particularly for death in the East when the body was cremated after you poured blood of sacrificial victims over it, after you buried it in wine offerings and set it on fire. You did this in order to release the soul of the dead person into the so-called Empyrean or into the underworld. There were all kinds of precise rituals that you observed. Not only at the point of death, but after death. You would observe the anniversary of the death of the individual. Oh, and the Roman Catholic Church has anniversary masses. I wonder where they got that idea. Hmm. Hmm. All right. So the, the phrase here, fear of death, is directed 
to the audience, which is part of a culture which has an extreme horror and fear of death. And they did all kinds of foolish things, bizarre things, superstitious things, cultic things, mystical things, did all kinds of things in order to prepare themselves for death or to prepare their dying loved ones for death. Jesus has come to deliver us from that. He is not addressing the audience per se. He's addressing the broader culture here that the audience is aware of. But he wants them to know and be assured that that superstitious fear does not belong to them because of Christ's deliverance. He has brought them, he has set them free. All right, now, this raises the issue of uh, the angels in verse 16. He returns to the angels for two reasons. First of all, he says that he did not help the angels. He does not give help to the angels. Why? Obvious reason. They don't need it. Why don't they need it? They can't be saved because the saved ones are already saved and the damned ones are already damned, all right? No, the point is they're fixed. There's no alteration in their condition. All right, they don't need it. Second, why does he place the angels outside of the paradigm? What's this all about? Maureen? Becoming, became man. He becomes flesh. Carnus from incarnate to become flesh. The angels have flesh? No, they don't have flesh. They don't have any flesh to be redeemed. So he doesn't incarnate himself as an angel. He incarnates himself in terms of that which needs to be redeemed. Not only because the angels don't need to be redeemed, but they don't have a nature that requires redemption. All right, so he takes the seed of Abraham. Now... Why Abraham? Psalm 8 in verses 6 to 9 was a what motif? Adamic motif. Why doesn't he say he took on the seed of Adam? He says he took on the seed of Abraham. Why why doesn't he go all the way back to Adam? He went back to Adam before in Psalm 8. God's chosen people. But why? Was it Adam, one of God's chosen people? Do you think Adam's in heaven, Bob? Yeah. He's called the second Adam, too. Yes. So why doesn't he go back to Adam? Why does he go back to Abraham? He's moving us to another period in history of redemption. But why? Terry? Abraham was the first one that had this sojourn. Yes, there you go. It's the sojourn motif, isn't it? It's Abraham, the first Hebrew, the first sojourner, remembering that the word Hebrew or Hebrews here is used in Genesis 14 to indicate a sojourner or a pilgrim. He goes back to the seed of Abraham because he wants to reinforce his narrative, his storyline that we're talking about a pilgrimage. And we're going to go back to the first pilgrim in the history of redemption. We're going to go back to the father of pilgrims, namely Abraham. So he goes back to Abraham in order to emphasize that a sojourn motif and the seed of Abraham are those Galatians 3 7 
who are the children of Abraham? Paul says, right? What's Paul say? Are you a child of Abraham? How are you a child of Abraham if you're a child of Abraham? Are you a child of Abraham? How? He's saying yes to the place in the world. He said, he said by being saved. That's not what Paul says in Galatians 3, 7. That's the point of it. But what did he say? You're a child of Abraham by faith. Yes, good Protestants. Good Protestants. Okay. All right. I don't mean the Catholics don't have faith, but the point is it's not faith alone. Since Paul's talking about faith alone in Galatians 2 and 3. All right. So those who are the seed of Abraham are those who are spiritually united to Christ. Here we go back up to that mysterious word one in verse 11. It's reinforced by this spiritual bond to the seed of Abraham. Now this word in this verse, he took hold. Some of your translations say he does not give help. This word is very strong. He took hold of the angels. He does not take hold of the angels. I want you to turn ahead to chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. David, do you have it? You read chapter 8, verse 9 for us. Uh, It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Thank you. Now, notice that phrase, I took them by the hand. That once again, literally, he took hold of them. And notice what the verse says. He took hold of them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. We've got a narrative sojourn motif again. Look at the imagery in chapter 2. Slavery and bondage in verse 15. Bondage to death, fear of death, takes hold of them. Verse 16, that's an exodus motif. He delivers or frees them, verse 15. He brings them out of that bondage through the exodus. Verse 14, through death he brings them out. He brings them past death. And how does he bring them past death? Through a paschal victim, through a Passover lamb. In the background, then, of this pilgrimage theme or sojourn theme with the seed of Abraham is the broader theme of the pilgrimage of Israel out of Egypt. That theme will dominate chapters 3 and 4 of this book. In other words, he is foreshadowing what is coming by the imagery that is here in verse 16. Exodus motifs are present in these four verses, 14, 15, and 16. In verse 17, we have the initial appearance of what motif? The first time the high priest has mentioned is mentioned. But once again, this is a foreshadowing device. The high priest is going to become a large part of chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 10, 25. I'm not ignoring chapter 3, verse 1, 
But nonetheless, he's going to spell out the whole ministry of the high priest in meticulous detail from chapter 4, 14 on to chapter 10, 25. Well, we've come to the end of our time this evening. Uh, uh, bring back your handouts. We'll pick up there with the rest of verse 17. We'll go on with chapter 3 next week. Uh, but I'll answer any questions or respond to any comments you may have uh, tonight before you leave. Art? You mentioned the fear of death and how it pertained to the culture of that time and all the rituals they went through. Do you think that that uh, fear of death idea applies to today's culture? Oh, yes. Yes, I I do think that there are a lot of people that are are afraid of death, and they use kind of bizarre superstitions or little uh, quirks in their own character in order to anticipate it or, or free themselves from it. And if you've ever been at the deathbed of a person who is a non-believer, the terror is there. They are terrified by it. Now, there are some that steel themselves against it like the Stoics did in the ancient culture because in, the, in Greece and Rome in the first century, there were Stoics who simply faced it, you know, gritting their teeth. There was nothing to fear. They persuaded themselves there was nothing to fear. But they were the definite minority in that culture. And I think that is true. I think that is true even in our modern pagan culture. The minority, the majority of people are scared to death of it, as they ought to be, without Christ. And it, it will show itself, you know, as they get closer to their last breath. What is your comfort in life and death? That you belong to your faithful Savior. Heidelberg Catechism, question one. See, I know that stuff. But it's a wonderful statement. It's a wonderful question and answer. Any other uh, comment or question? Yes, David? Death this generation. Uh, which are, they are discussed extensively in the forthcoming passages. Is it your view that uh, they were regenerate or unregenerate? It's my view that those uh, over 20 were unregenerate. Their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. They would not enter his rest. I'll make that point in detail as we take a look at Psalm 95 and the way it's used in 3 and 4. Joshua and Caleb are regenerate. Moses is regenerate. But that majority, that generation does not enter into his rest. 20 and over. 20 and under, that's a different story. Because uh, if you go to Numbers chapter 12, where they don't believe the report, that's where God says that those who are 20 years of age and above will die in the wilderness, and therefore those under that age will enter into the promised land. So they are not, uh, they are not uh, barred by, by, for the same reason uh, the under-20s are not barred for the same reason the over-20s are. That was unbelief in that generation. They came back and believed the doubting spies. Remember, the ten spies came back with the, with the report of, uh, that we can't go up into the land when God had said that they would give the land to them. So in their unbelief, he said, all right, you will not enter into my rest. And that's an eschatological rest. And on the other side, there remains a rest for the spirits of the blessed, Sabbath rest. So we bring in the eschatology of the Sabbath. But we will 
we'll, we'll take a look at that in detail as we go through chapter 3 and 4, assuming we make it through chapter 3 and 4 by December. But we will go as far as we can. <laughs>